Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. To know me is to know that my fascination with true crime didn't necessarily start with today's case, but goddamn, my passion certainly blossomed when I first sunk my teeth into the details of this specific case. I am an unapologetic JonBenet Ramseyologist, and it's my constant theorizing and asking of hashtag fucking questions that actually led me to starting Dark as Hell in the first place. The story of JonBenet's murder is one that has captured the American public since the news first broke 24 Christmases ago. It's a sordid tale that has all of the elements. A beautiful little girl brutally slain, whispers of exploitation and sexual abuse threaded throughout the questionable beauty pageant realm she existed in, a glimmering example of the all-American family whose carefully curated veneer cracked under incessant scrutiny, and an unanswered question that has haunted countless of people for over 20 years. Who killed JonBenet Ramsey? There's another question, though, that haunts me in particular. Why has JonBenet Ramsey become merely a footnote in the story of her murder? This week and next, we're going to be diving deep into the case of Jean Benet, not necessarily with the out-and-out goal of answering the question of who killed her. The Lord knows I've got some ideas about that. Instead, we're going to discuss the murder of Jean Benet in a different mindset, a mindset dedicated to surveying all of the facts, all of the theories, and all the twisting threads that created this monster of a case into what it is but we're doing it in a way that puts JonBenet in the forefront of our minds, not just as the lingering glittery shadow that decades of theorizing has made her out to be. This is the murder of JonBenet Ramsey, and as tragic a tale as it is, it is still her own story, and it's one I want to do justice to and for in its telling. Let's get ready to get dark as hell. and much like the image Patsy Ramsey so diligently maintained within the family's older Colorado home, things seemed to be going beautifully for the Ramsey family as they approached the holiday season. Patriarch John Ramsey, known for his quiet but gentle demeanor, had had quite the year as the founder and CEO of Access Graphics, which was described as a computer services company which Sure, in 96, that vague description checks, especially since they were also a subsidiary of Lockheed Martin, the infamous defense technology company. In any regard, John had been nominated as the Entrepreneur of the Year by the Boulder Chamber of Commerce, as Access Graphics recognized crossing the $1 billion mark in sales. $1 billion in 96 is like Bezos money, I have to imagine, so this was a serious reason to celebrate. And celebrate they did. As the news of a local billion-dollar company began making the rounds, newspapers further disseminated the information with articles, feature pieces, and even a television bit or two. Access Graphics held a self-congratulatory banquet of sorts to celebrate on Friday, December 20th, just before a week filled with Christmas parties, including one that Patsy, John's wife, would be hosting. Patsy was actually John's second wife, and she was 14 years his junior. John himself had children from his previous marriage, his adult son, John Andrew, an adult daughter, Melinda, and another daughter, Elizabeth, who had passed away during a violent car accident at 22 years old, just four years before all of this happened in 1992. It was in 1980, though, that John married the vivacious West Virginian, 23-year-old Patsy Ramsey. Patsy was the quintessential all-American wife, with an eye for decor and a flair for the dramatic, stemming from her days on the pageant circuit. Just three years before she married John, she had won the Miss West Virginia title, cementing her love for the pageant world. Patsy had been a journalism major at West Virginia University and was, by all accounts, gifted when it came to her course of study. She graduated magna cum laude, and she'd focused on advertising with a particular focus in marketing. Though she had worked for John at one point, in 1996, Patsy was more focused on running the Ramsey household, which included their Boulder home, 
a vacation home in Charlevoix, Michigan, two private planes, and a yacht at one point, as well as, you know, raising her two children with John. In 1987, the Ramseys welcomed their son, Burke, and three years later in 1990, their blonde, blue-eyed little girl, Jean Benet, arrived. Jean Benet's name is a combination of John's first name and a twist on his middle name, Bennett, adding a bit of a European flair, definitely a patsy thing to do, especially since she was a self-confessed Francophile. Patsy no doubt thought their daughter's name would also help add some flair for when she began entering JonBenet into beauty pageants, so she could follow much in the same in her mother's footsteps. By the time of her death, JonBenet had won over two dozen titles and trophies from her time on the circuit, over 24 awards throughout her six years of life. It almost begs the question of how many pageants she competed in overall, and at what age she did start competing, because, I mean, that's quite a haul and a commitment for a six-year-old. Actually, the last title she would win occurred just a few weeks before her death, when she was crowned Colorado's Little Miss Christmas. Serving as Little Miss Christmas, Jaminet sat on the back of a family friend's convertible that was decorated with a sign bearing her name as the current Little Miss Christmas. She was decked out in a little red Christmassy dress, waving to the crowd as Jingle Bell Rock spilled from the speakers, reveling in the Christmas spirit of it all. 20 days later, the girl known as Little Miss Christmas would be dead though. As it was the holiday season, the Ramsey's social calendar was filled with various parties, get-togethers, and other such events to attend leading up to Christmas Day. There was the Access Graphics Celebratory Banquet, Jaminet's appearance as Little Miss Christmas, and even their own Christmas party that they hosted on December 23rd. It's a testament to Patsy's own determination and love of socializing, how she managed to consistently put on a beautiful and busy front while she herself was still recovering from a tough battle with cancer. Patsy had been diagnosed with stage 4 ovarian cancer in 1993 when she was 37 and had undergone a grueling and experimental treatment plan that forced her to travel between the family home in Boulder to the National Health Institute in Bethesda, Maryland. Following an extensive course of chemotherapy treatment as well as two surgeries, Patsy was declared to be in remission in 94, said one longtime friend from their community in Charlevoix, quote, Patsy had a steel backbone, but also a soft Southern way about her that was endearing. No doubt this backbone helped her organize their family of four throughout the hectic holidays, which this year included several parties and preparing to spend the end of the holidays at their Charlevoix, Michigan home with John's older children before the foursome flew to Florida to embark on a Disney cruise. On December 23rd, the Ramseys hosted their Christmas party from just around 5 p.m. that night to a little past 8 p.m. There was Quite the crowd at their home, which seems weird to consider in these COVID times. Over 30 people attended, including some unexpected guests who had joined along with invited friends at the last minute. There was a small gaggle of children for Burke and JonBenet to play with, and the Ramsey's social circle included their close friends, the Fernies and the Whites, who were also in attendance. Patsy had even thought to hire a Santa Claus actor for the kids, and since Bill McReynolds, the retired journalism professor who was playing the role of Santa that night was still recovering from a triple bypass surgery. His wife, Janet, attended as well just to keep an eye on him. Patsy shared that she started the gift giving with JonBenet early that year, just before their guests arrived. In Death of Innocence, she wrote, quote, I had given her a tiny gold bracelet on the evening of December 23rd, 1996, placing it on her wrist. It was the evening of our family Christmas party, and since she was all dressed up, I decided to let her open the gift early so she could wear it during the holiday. The bracelet was inscribed with her name on the front and on the back was the date that she was actually supposed to receive it, 12-25-96. Strangely, and in another darkly creepy foreshadowing kind of way, there was a 911 call placed from the Ramsey home during the party at 6.47 p.m., when the caller said nothing and then quickly hung up, and when a follow-up call went unanswered, a police officer was dispatched and arrived less than 10 minutes later at 6.54 p.m. Now, 
There's been a lot of speculation about this call over the years. Some say the kids at the party must have been playing a prank or maybe Jean Benet herself called. Others point to the Ramseys claim in their book, Death of Innocence, that Fleet White, their close friend, had been, quote, using the phone to make a series of calls, trying to get some medicine to his mother in a hospital in Aspen, Colorado. Apparently, he dialed wrong and got 911 instead of 411. Another version of the story that White called 911 was that he was trying to make an international call. White himself has never confirmed or denied either of these stories. In a different twist, according to the Washington Post, which, quote, quoted an unnamed source, Boulder police have been told the call was made by a drunken guest attending a Christmas party hosted by the child's parents. In any regard, when the officer showed up to the Ramsey's house on 15th Street that night, John nor Patsy answered the door. Instead, one of their friends, Susan Stein, did. And saying she opened the door feels generous. It's been reported for years that instead of opening the door fully, allowing the officer in, or even stepping out to see what the matter was, Susan only cracked the door open, barely partway, to tell the officer the call had been made mistakenly, and then allegedly refused to let him inside to make sure nothing was afoot. Susan Stein has often been called Patsy's pit bull over the years, given the often eyebrow-raising length she's gone to in order to protect the Ramsey's reputation. Loyal friendship aside, I still find this whole interaction odd. It's almost like she was shooing the police officer away, and not even from her own house. Why didn't one of the Ramsey's come to the door instead? Had something happened inside the house that she knew the Ramseys, and particularly her good friend Patsy, wouldn't want seen? Maybe some of the adults were drunk, and the optics of drunk adults surrounded by so many children admittedly wouldn't have been great optics. Patsy claimed that she didn't drink in subsequent police interviews because of the medications that she was on. Was John one drink too deep and Patsy was tending to him? Truly, who's to say? And what weird odds that just a few days later, there would be another 911 call coming from the same house. As it was, the officer left the 15th Street house by 7.09 p.m., and no charges were ever filed in relations to that particular phone call. The next day, Christmas Eve, JonBenet was attending a play date with her friend Megan Kostinick at Megan's house. Another factor for how busy the Ramseys must have been during this holiday week they were planning to fly out to their home in Michigan the day after Christmas in order to celebrate with the rest of the family. No doubt Patsy must have been taking care of, you know, last minute errands. And this play date would have been a great way for JonBenet to get out of her hair for a few hours. However, it was during the play date that something caught Barbara Kostinex, Megan's mom, caught her attention. According to Perfect Town, Perfect Murder, Megan's mother shared that, quote, the kids were talking about Santa, getting all excited. I asked JonBenet if she had visited Santa Claus yet. She said, oh, Santa was at our Christmas party the other night. Megan had seen Santa at the Pearl Street Mall, so we talked about that. Then JonBenet said, Santa Claus promised that he would make a secret visit after Christmas. I thought she was confused. Christmas is tonight, I told her, and Santa will be coming tonight. No, no, JonBenet insisted. He said this would be after Christmas, and it's a secret. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but JonBenet making this statement and the fact that she received a little card from Santa Bill the night before that said she would be getting a special gift after Christmas, these two incidents send many a theorists down the rabbit hole of wondering if Santa Bill would inevitably have something to do with JonBenet's murder. To that, though, I give a resounding fuck no, and we'll simply say that we'll get to it in next week's episode. That night, the Ramsey family attended Christmas Eve Mass at St. John's Episcopal in town, and not much else is known about how they chose to observe Christmas Eve. Later that night, John and Patsy began gathering the wrapped gifts that they had hidden from the children and placing them under the Christmas tree. At 9 p.m., John actually headed over to their neighbor, Joe Barnhill's. Barnhill had allowed the Ramseys use of his garage where they'd been keeping hidden a silver bicycle for Jean Benet in the weeks leading up to Christmas. Other gifts were reportedly hidden throughout the basement. 
it's been noted that outside of the train playroom, JonBenet was afraid of the basement and she didn't like going down there. So I assume her parents used that to their advantage to hide gifts throughout the admittedly pretty expansive basement floor. The next day, Christmas, happened as it does for most families. John later said in his deposition that he went downstairs to turn the Christmas tree lights on before the kids came barreling down to see what their Christmas halls looked like. The family spent the morning opening gifts, playing with new toys, and checking out everything that they had received. Apparently, JonBenet wasn't too impressed with the My Twin doll Patsy had ordered for her, instead becoming fascinated with the jewelry craft kit instead. Again, using Death of Innocence as a source, John wrote, quote, While the kids played with their gifts, Patsy and I went to the kitchen to prepare our traditional Christmas morning breakfast of pancakes, bacon, corned beef hash, and hash browns. I usually made the pancakes, so I got all the ingredients together while Patsy set the table and cooked the rest of the breakfast. JonBenet always loved to get into the act and was right under my elbows, standing on a stool by the stove to help pour the pancake batter. She normally liked to make a Mickey Mouse shape and decorate it at the table with fruit and raisins to make the face come to life, but there wasn't time for that on this Christmas day. Too many new things to play with. Burke came to the table just long enough to eat a bite. As far as he was concerned, eating got in the way of playing. And Burke was pretty busy playing with a Nintendo 64 he had just gotten. A toy that actually drew a small crowd of neighborhood friends over, as Patsy later told police. While the neighborhood boys crowded into Burke's room to fawn over the video game, Patsy puttered around, preparing for their trip, wrapping some gifts to take to their neighbor's Christmas dinner that night, and getting last-minute gifts together for her stepchildren. During the afternoon, John drove out to the hangar to check on the family plane and make sure it was ready for their trip. He's said to have spent a few hours there doing God knows what, because what is it that a person is supposed to do when checking on one of the private planes before shipping out to a Michigan waterfront home? <laughs> he did mention to police that he might have brought some presents with him when he went to the hangar, as his two older children, John, Andrew, and Melinda, would be joining them as Charlevoix the next day for the, quote, first ever family Christmas at the summer cottage. How quaint a summer cottage. At 5 p.m. that night, the family headed out to their friends, the Whites, to attend their Christmas Day dinner. They arrived at about 5.30 and stayed until 8.30 or so. Nothing remarkable was said to have taken place during the dinner, which, given how weird the other holiday party was, that's probably a gift in and of itself. The scene was set in classic Christmas fashion, according to John's recounting in Death of Innocence. Quote, Dinner was served in the living and dining rooms next to the beautifully decorated Christmas tree, glistening with silver ornaments and ribbons that reflected Priscilla's passion for all things silver. We had eaten together last Christmas, so it was beginning to feel like a new tradition for us to join their family. The fire was ablaze in the fireplace. It was Christmas Day, and life was good. When the Ramseys left, they made two stops before returning home. The Walker residence and the house where the Steins lived so that they could drop off little gifts to their friends. Patsy claimed that she spoke with Susan Stein for about 10 minutes or so when they dropped off her gift, and then they drove the rest of the way to their house, arriving at around 9 p.m. According to her 1997 testimony, Patsy shared that JonBenet and Burke had both fallen asleep on the way home, but JonBenet had to be carried into the house. Quote, well, she was just really zonked, and John carried her up to her room. And I, you know, ran up behind him and, or in front of him, I can't remember. Maybe, or it might have been in front of him to turn the bed down. And he laid her down and I got her undressed and put her, I left her shirt on her and uh, went to the bathroom and tried to find some pajama pants. And all I could find was some like long underwear pants. And I put those on. Downstairs, Burke was still in high gear with the Christmas of it all, which didn't bode well since Patsy wanted the family to have touched down in Minneapolis next morning by 11 a.m. According to John, as Patsy was finishing getting JonBenet ready for bed, I, quote, went downstairs to get Burke to come up to bed, but he was deeply involved in assembling the miniature parking garage he had received that morning. I could tell he wasn't going to go to bed until the project was finished, so I settled down on the floor beside him. Helping him complete what his mind was focused on was the best way to get us both in bed quickly. Allegedly by 9.30, the father-son duo had finished the project and John led Burke to bed. 
though exact times still haven't been confirmed all of these years later. The Ramses would later say that from anywhere between 10 p.m. and 11 p.m., they too headed to bed. John allegedly took melatonin tablets as he got ready for bed, read for what he called a short while, and finally turned to sleep himself. Their alarm was set for 5.30 a.m. the next morning. And by that time, life as the Ramses knew it would be changed forever. To the utter shock of no one, I'm planning to get in fucking depth with the timeline surrounding the events of December 26, 1996. Probably more in depth with the timeline of this specific case than most have ever really heard before, TBH. The story of Jamadi's murder is one that's so ingrained in the American memory, I think that we've actually lost crucial details along the way in the frequent retellings of the events, which is precisely why I'm choosing to be even more detailed than you, dear listeners, might have become accustomed to. So, let's get into it. At around midnight on what is now December 26th, one of the Ramsey's neighbors, Scott Gibbons, quote, looked out his kitchen window at the Ramsey residence and observed the upper kitchen lights were on and dimmed low. Odd, given that both Patsy and John claimed to have been in bed long before midnight. Had one of them simply left the lights on by mistake? Or was someone in the household awake? So too around this point were there confirmed sightings of John Ramsey's two children from his first marriage. 1,400 miles away and between midnight and 1 a.m., his daughter Melinda and her fiance returned to the home they were staying at in Marietta, Georgia. John's son, John Andrew, had been watching a movie with two friends that ended at 12.30. By 1 a.m., he was at his friend Brad Millard's house to collect his car and drive to the house that his sister was staying at. Back in Boulder at 2 a.m., another neighbor reported something to police during a subsequent interview. Melody Stanton later claimed to have been, quote, awoken by what she described as one loud, incredible scream, obviously from a child, that lasted three to five seconds and stopped abruptly. And the scream sounded like it had come from across the street south of the Ramsey residence. Melanie did not call the disturbance into police that night. I wonder if she wishes she had. At 5.15 a.m., Melinda's fiance, Stuart, reported seeing John Andrew walking down the hallway of the Marietta home they were all at. No doubt, the three of them were about to start getting ready for the day as they were all planning to travel to the Charlotte Boy home. The reason I mentioned the movements of Jean Bonnet's older half-siblings? To make it evident that they, at least, had nothing to do with their six-year-old sister's subsequent murder. At just about 5.30 a.m., once again back in Boulder, John allegedly woke himself up and got into the shower. A few minutes later, allegedly at 5.33 a.m., Patsy wakes up herself. At 5.45 a.m., Patsy is heading down the back spiral staircase into the kitchen. It is here, on the third step of the stairs, that she finds three pieces of paper curiously laid out. She picks them up and claims she only read a few lines before she started screaming. The papers in her hand contained over 380 words, explaining that JonBenet had been kidnapped in what has since become the longest ransom note in American criminal history. Patsy claimed a variety of times that she only read enough of the ransom note to see that JonBenet had been kidnapped and that the kidnappers were demanding $118,000, which is a sum that we will get to. For now though, Let's take a look at what all the ransom note did say. Quote, Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. We respect your business, but not the country it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed. And if you want her to see 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account. $100,000 will be in $100 bills and the remaining $18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure that you bring an adequate size attache to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. If we monitor you getting the money early, 
We might call you early to arrange an earlier delivery of the money and hence an earlier pickup of your daughter. Any deviation from my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains for a proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you not to provoke them. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as police or FBI, will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but be warned, we are familiar with law enforcement countermeasure tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good Southern common sense of yours. It's up to you now, John. Victory. S-B-T-C. At this point, John comes barreling down the stairs at the sound of Patsy's screams. He later said that, quote, I ran downstairs. She told me JonBenet was missing and that there was a ransom note. I said, call the police. Seven minutes later, after discovering the note, checking JonBenet's room to no avail, running into Burke's room to make sure he's still safe, and with John now reading the ransom note in the kitchen beside her, Patsy calls 911 at 5.52 a.m. Here's that call for you to listen to now. to end a frantic 911 call to report the alleged kidnapping of your daughter, but we'll get into this further next week. Don't worry. After hanging up, but not really hanging up, the 911 call, Patsy chooses to call her neighbors at 5.54 a.m. I will never fucking understand this decision and why the Fernies and the Whites agreed to come over. The early morning invite extended to friends after your daughter has allegedly been kidnapped is seriously one of the most confounding decisions that happened that morning, in my mind. At 5.59 a.m., Officer Rick French arrived at the Ramsey home as the first responding officer on the scene. According to French, after entering the home, quote, John directed me through the house and pointed out a three-page handwritten note, which was laid on the wooden floor just west of the kitchen area. In his police report, French states that after, quote, a quick inspection of the interior of the house, he believed there were, quote, no obvious signs of forced entry or struggle. Having been, for all intents and purposes, presented with an actual kidnapping, French radioed to his supervisor, Sergeant Paul Reichenbach, to alert him. By my research, it appears French does go down into the basement to perform a cursory search sometime before 6.10 a.m., even with police reports, the timeline of this day is convoluted as all hell because, as I said earlier, so many details have been warped over the years that it's difficult to nail down one exact timeline. While he doesn't list what exact time he does so, more sources than not indicate French performed the search of the basement after he checked for those signs of obvious entry or a struggle and before anyone else arrived. 
According to Newsweek, quote, in the police report French filed about the events that morning, he says he didn't open the door to the basement room. That is to say what we now know is the wine cellar room, quote, because he was looking for exits the kidnapper might have used. He noticed the latch was on the wrong side for a door leading out of the house. So he kept moving. It's apparently something French is still, quote, tortured by to this day. At 6.10 a.m., Officer Carl Vecht arrives on the scene to assist French. Even upon the arrival of a second officer, there is no movement made to lock down the scene. Much of normal police protocol just goes completely out the window when it comes to the scene at the Ramsey house this morning. And it's because of a variety of factors, not just Boulder's absolute bungling of the job. JonBenet's murder was the first murder in Boulder in the entire year. And at that point in time, it's about five days from 1997 beginning. So just think about that. <laughs> the Boulder PD simply weren't experienced enough with cases of this ilk. And honestly, it shows. They didn't lock down the scene beyond closing off JonBenet's bedroom. And they were, admittedly, understandably, only focused on what could be happening outside of the house as it was, because throughout the morning, BPD was under the assumption that they were dealing with a kidnapping. To quote Perfect Town, Perfect Murder, in other words, any person in the Ramsey house could and often did move freely throughout the home. A few minutes later, though the exact time isn't confirmed, John calls the family's pilot, Michael Archuleta. It's unconfirmed what exactly was said as John left him a message with his co-pilot but he did share the news that Jean Benet had been kidnapped. And even in that message, he didn't cancel their flight to Charlevoix. Given that the ransom letter had explicitly stated not to discuss the kidnapping with outsiders, quote, the police were puzzled about why John was in such a hurry to tell his pilot that his daughter had been kidnapped. And like, me fucking too, I'm puzzled about this as well. According to French's report, within 15 minutes of his own arrival, the Whites, Fleet, and Priscilla arrived at what puts our timeline around 6.15 a.m. That also puts our guest list in the house at 7, including the Ramses. Almost immediately after arriving, Fleet White takes it upon himself to play Sherlock and does his own search of the basement. At a later deposition, quote, White testified that when he began his search, the lights were already on in the basement and the door in the hallway leading to the basement wine cellar room was opened. He further testified that a window in the basement playroom was broken. Under the broken window, Mr. White states that there is a suitcase along with a broken shard of glass. He does not, however, remember whether the window was opened or closed. Mr. White also opened the door to the wine cellar room, but he could not see anything inside because it was dark and he could not find the light switch. Few things here. One, seven people waltzing through a fucking crime scene. Like somebody sedate me. What were you doing, BPD? French, my man, what? What are you doing letting... Fleet White just rock up and go play detective by himself in the basement. I know you were working from a kidnapping perspective at this point in time, but still, I think also this needs some clarification. French went into the basement first. He noticed the wine cellar door. Being under the assumption that this was a kidnapping, he did not open the door because he saw that it opened in such a way that it would not have led out of the house. At that time, French was looking for ways a possible intruder could have entered or exited the house. In his mind, this door simply led to another room that did not fit that criteria, which is why he didn't open it. But if French was working under the kidnapping theory and went into the basement first, how did he miss the broken window? He said in his report he did a quick inspection, so that begs the question, how quick? Quick enough to miss a broken window and not investigate further? It's still interesting, though, that when Fleet White went looking immediately in the basement and testified he could not see anything in the room without the lights on, and since he couldn't find the light switch, he just didn't bother to search more intensely. Just, you know, some things to consider as we move on. Minutes later, at about 6.20 a.m., John Fernie arrives. 
Apparently, John tried to enter through the patio door, which, again, with the crime scene waltzing, what the hell? His wife, Barbara, arrived a few minutes after him, which puts us at about 6.25 a.m. Our guest list, for those not keeping track at home, is now clocking in at a healthy nine people. At 6.35 a.m., Detective Linda Arndt is called and informed about the alleged kidnapping. At 6.45 a.m., three more members of the BPD arrive. Officer Barry Weiss, Officer Sue Barklow, and Sergeant Reichenbach. At the same time, two members of the victim advocates group who work with BPD arrive. They are Mary Lou Jedimus and Grace Morlock. Victim advocates are described as being, quote, servicing crime victims, but they are also employees of law enforcement. Their job is to minimize the victim's trauma. They are trained to recognize and meet the emotional needs of victims and or their loved ones, whether it is to listen to their story or create an emotionally safe environment. Apparently, that morning, it meant supplying the family with bagels and coffee when they arrived. At just about 7 a.m., Burke was woken up because, allegedly, he was asleep this whole time, even while Patsy was screaming, calling 911, and running into his room earlier. It's unclear specifically what he was told about what was going on, but John claims that he simply told him that JonBenet was missing. At approximately 7.13 a.m., the Ramsey's pastor from St. John's Episcopal, Reverend Roll Haverstock, and our now 10th guest on the scene, arrived. As the Reverend arrived, Burke was actually just about to leave. His parents decided that once he was dressed, he should be taken to the White's house, which he was by Priscilla White, and her sister, Allison Shoeni, who was staying at the White's house, promised to look after him with the other children that day. John Fernie also left to get his own children at this time, and he brought them to the White's as well. I, for one, would love to know what Priscilla Weiss discussed in the car with Burke and or what Burke heard or was told himself. Also, why are you letting one of your children out of your sight if your other child has just been kidnapped? Hashtag fucking questions. At 8.10 a.m., detectives Linda Arndt and Fred Patterson arrive at the Ramsey home. And Arndt, for one, gets right down to it. Knowing a ransom call is supposed to be coming in shortly, the Ramsey's house phones are tapped. John's office is also later tapped as well. Arndt began instructing John on what to say if the call came in. According to Newsweek, she said John should, quote, demand to talk to Jean Benet. John Ramsey took notes. Must talk to JB, he scribbled. Throughout the morning, it's understood that Patsy was sequestering herself in the family's solarium of sorts, a room just off of the living room, and she was surrounded by the reverend and her friends. It's also noted that during the morning, and I wish I was fucking kidding when I say this, that after setting up the bagels and coffee, quote, the advocates began tidying it up. Yep, yep, they tidied it up. One friend helped clean the kitchen, wiping down the counters with a spray cleaner. And the cops fucking let them. Literally, the cops just watched and waved bon voyage to crucial evidence while the victim advocates lysoled it away. And we wonder why it's been over 20 years and the case hasn't definitively ever been solved. At 8.15 a.m., FBI agent Ron Walker is alerted to the situation. For those who are unaware, FBI typically gets involved with kidnapping situations based on the likelihood that victims could be taken over state lines, which then gives those cases federal jurisdiction. At this point in time, Walker began to make moves to get to Boulder in the Ramsey's house. By 9 a.m., John has already arranged to have the $118,000 of the ransom locked and loaded, ready to go. According to some accounts, John Fernie had connections to one of the managers at a local bank, Lafayette State Bank, which is how they were able to pull the strings and have the money available at truly a moment's notice. John himself came out and said in a CNN special report that he, quote, called a friend of mine who was my banker, and he raised our credit limit on our visa to $118,000 so that the Ramseys could have had the money almost instantaneously. Strange, though, how he, and no one else in the house for that matter, ever actually collected the money. 10 a.m. comes and 10 a.m. goes, with more officers arriving at the scene. 
No one notices or even make mention of the fact, though, that the ransom call never came. It's here that I want to break down the ransom note with you guys. Like I said earlier, the ransom note in this case is one of the weirdest throughout history and particularly American criminal history because of how insanely long it is. It was about 380 words and according to statement analysts, 76% of the note itself was unnecessary, which begs the question, why? Why write such an absurdly long letter with all sorts of flourishes and extraneous details that aren't needed in a situation that truly is a time crunch. Criminal experts in the CBS documentary, The Case of JonBenet Ramsey, actually conducted an experiment to see how long it would take them to write out the exact note word for word by hand. And on average, it took them 21 minutes to write out. And that's not even including the fact that they were copying the letter. Otherwise, it would actually have taken the original writer longer since they would have had to have been thinking on the fly for what they were writing content-wise. And what kind of kidnapper would waste precious and crucial time writing the next great American novel for their kidnapping ransom note? 20 plus minutes is a long time to be waxing poetic when you've allegedly broken into someone's home to kidnap their daughter. The letter itself is filled with strange details, almost contradictory statements, and just general fucking weirdness. From the jump, the way the letter is addressed is odd. Listen, Mr. Ramsey. Listen is an auditory command, not a visual one. To instruct someone reading a note to listen seems off. I saw a theory that suggested, could someone have been dictating for the writer, and they meant the writer should be listening to them. And it was just a mistake that the writer started with listen. Was it supposed to be written out just as Mr. Ramsey first? Secondly, the letter is threatening to kill your daughter if you so much as breathe in the direction of a police officer. So again, why the hell would anyone start inviting neighbors over? Neighbors who will obviously be told about what's going on. That's, I guess, less on the writer and more on the Ramseys. I just can't believe they invited neighbors over. That's I hate it. <laughs> I also thought it was interesting how the writers switch between narrative tone. They go back and forth between writing in first person. For example, with the line that read, any deviation from my instructions. And then they go back to speaking as part of a group with lines like, we are a small foreign faction in the opening line. And then back to speaking as a group at the end with quote, don't underestimate us, John. So which is it? one kidnapper or a group of them. Also, how the fuck did the writer think to ask for such a strange amount of money regarding the 118000 The Ramses were well, well off, and it had been largely publicized by the media in recent weeks that Axis Graphics, John's company, had crossed the billion-dollar threshold. If this was a kidnapping, why lowball yourselves when it was well known the Ramses had much more money? And even if you didn't know about the true extent of their wealth, why such an oddly specific amount? The amount itself was actually the exact figure John had received as a holiday bonus for the end of the year. Are we to believe that the kidnapper just happened to stumble across a pay stub with this amount of money while they were in the house? Was it actually a monetary exchange? Lou Smith later pointed out that $118,000 at that time would actually equal 1 million Mexican pesos. So are we to believe that this really is a small foreign faction? Or was the amount simply something easily top of mind because the writer knew about this specific amount being readily available to the family? The writer also uses a variety of eyebrow-raising phrases, foreign faction being one. If a foreign faction did want to assert their dominance over the situation, why in the world would they admit that they're a small foreign faction and thus immediately suggesting that they don't have as much power as they tried to claim they do throughout the rest of the letter? What the fuck was with the fat cat inclusion? Like, I hate that line. You're not the only fat cat around. Sounds like some old school gangster line from a movie. It's honestly almost comical compared to the rest of the letter. Other one-off weirdness. Business seemed to be purposely misspelled in the original letter the addition of add hence in the letter, which we will further discuss, I promise. And also, 
quote, use that good Southern common sense of yours, John. Except John wasn't Southern. So why include this at all? And of course, the signature at the end also drew questions the morning of December 26th and throughout the year since. Victory, SBTC. No one has ever been able to make heads nor tails of it, though there are several theories about what it might mean. The Ramses suggested later that it stood for Santa Barbara Tennis Club, which was stamped across the sweatshirt that a later suspect had been given. Could it stand for seduced by the child? Or is there a biblical reference here and SBT stands for saved by the cross? Or was the writer of a nautical mindset and SBT stands for signed by the captain? Even more theories abound about what the acronym means, but these few are the most interesting to consider in my mind. There are also several references in the note that are derived from movie quotes. Let's compare them. From Dirty Harry, we have this line, quote, if you talk to anyone, I don't care if it's a Pekingese pissing against a lamppost, the girl dies. In the ransom note, by comparison, we have this written, if we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. From the movie In the Nick of Time, there's this quote, you talk to a cop, you even look at a cop too long and your daughter's head, your daughter's dead. I'll kill her myself. Cut the head off right in front of you. In our ransom note, we have this similar phrasing. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as police or FBI, will result in your daughter being beheaded. And from the movie Speed, one killer says to another character, do not attempt to grow a brain. In the ransom note, it says, don't try to grow a brain, John. Now, I'm no forensic expert in anything, though God knows I wish I was, but like, this overall is a weird fucking ransom note when it comes to the content. But there are still things even stranger about the ransom note that aren't even within the contents of the letter. Because you see, there wasn't just one ransom note. There were two. Another piece of paper taken from the same pad that the three-page ransom note had been written on was found by crime scene technicians, and it had the beginnings of what appeared to be the first draft of the letter written on it. The phrase, Mr. and Mrs. I, was written on this other page. And was the I actually the initial writing of the letter R, R for Ramsey? Is this some sort of false start? And another thing, the very pad of paper that the notes had been written on, it was Patsy's stationery. And the pad was located just by the little secretary desk underneath the telephone where it was always kept. Not only that, but quote, the pen used to write the ransom note was sourced to the defendant's home and found placed back in its normal place by the phone, according to later depositions. According to the JonBenet Encyclopedia, which, yes, is a very real and was a very helpful source, quote, crime scene techs at the scene had recovered three Sharpie felt tip pens from an orange metal container on the kitchen counter beneath the telephone from which Patsy had made her 911 call. Not far from where the ransom note tablet was found. The U.S. Secret Service eventually determined that one of the pens, a pre-November 92 water-based ink Sharpie, was used to write both the practice and the actual ransom notes. The Secret Service, which maintains a huge database on inks because of federally mandated assignment to chase hoarders, told us, quote, the ink on the notes is unique in the collection of approximately 7,000 standards from the ink library. All that is to say, whoever wrote the ransom note used the specific pen from that cup in the Ramsey home obviously used the notepad from within the house to write both the full ransom note and what appears to be a first draft. And then they put everything used to write the ransom note back in its specifically proper spot. The whole thing, and investigators would come to state that they believe this too, just screams of the note being staged. The question is, who staged the note? Let's get back to our timeline, and admittedly, things get a little tricky here. In one of his depositions, John claims that at 10 a.m., he, quote, also searched the basement area alone. He testified that he found the broken window partially open. Under the broken window, Mr. Ramsey also saw the same suitcase seen earlier by Mr. White. 
Mr. Ramsey testified that the suitcase belonged to his family, but was normally stored in a different place. Mr. Ramsey then returned upstairs. However, the JonBenet Ramsey Encyclopedia had this to put out. Quote, in his 1998 testimony, John Ramsey provides several different times for when he searched the basement on his own. He first states, quote, it would have been that time period, seven to nine. And he later reiterates that, quote, it was probably sometime between seven and nine. The best I can do is it was, I believe, after the police came because they had gone through the base, the house before I figured out what I'm going to do. It was before 10 o'clock. But when reminded that the ransom note said a phone call would come between 8 and 10 a.m., John made clear that he had visited the basement prior to that time since, quote, when we were ready for the phone call and I was prepped about what I was going to say and I was getting the family ready. And so between that period of time, we were just waiting for the phone call and I was near the phone. And so I was either in the study or on the first floor. I was just waiting for it. So when was it, John? What time did you descend to the basement alone? I think I have the answer. At 10.30 a.m., Detective Arndt had JonBenet's bedroom sealed off, but they didn't seal off the rest of the house. Quote, police reports also show that officers did little to protect the integrity of the crime scene. Believing the crime was a kidnapping, the cops cordoned off JonBenet's bedroom with yellow and black crime scene tape to preserve whatever evidence her abductor may have left behind. Also at this time, Arndt noticed that she hadn't seen John in a while. She remarked that he is, quote, out of pocket. I believe it's at this point that John must have gone into the basement alone and then slipped out of the police's notice because John isn't seen again at the house until just after 12 p.m., by which point the extraneous officers and forensic team have left the house, so Detective Arnn is the only officer remaining on the scene. Detective Arnn even called her supervisor, Sergeant Larry Mason, at 12.30 and went so far as to tell him that, quote, Ramsey is still missing. John finally appears at that point, and Arndt notices that he seems, quote, agitated, and he is keeping to himself. At this point, she approached Fleet White and asks if he'll help keep John busy via distraction. She suggests that they look through the house themselves, which, Linda, what the fuck kind of evidence-contaminating suggestion is this? Fleet agrees, which, Christ God, why, but says it would be more impactful if Arndt gave John the suggestion herself to make it seem like an official duty he could do. So it was, at 1 p.m., Detective Arndt pulled John aside with Fleet as well and asked John to search the house, quote, top to bottom to see if anything was amiss. John agreed and, quote, made a beeline for the basement door. Quick side note, who the fuck immediately heads for the basement, especially after this basement in particular, has already been searched several times? The men descended the stairs, however, and they first looked through the train room again. From where they were, they could see the broken window once again, and John remarked to Fleet that he had actually broken the window himself back in August. Nothing was afoot here, and so the men poked around a shower stall, opened another closet after they moved a metal grate that had been barring its doorway, and then they moved to the wine cellar. At 1.05 p.m., after flicking on the lights, John screamed, quote, Oh my God, my baby. JonBenet Ramsey had been found. She was covered by a white blanket, and when John ripped it off of her, they could see that she was still wearing the long-sleeved sequined star t-shirt and white long johns that Patsy had dressed her in the night before. There was a visible urine stain on the pants. Her little hands were bound over her head, though one hand seemed to be slipping out of its tie. There was black duct tape across her mouth and a cord around her neck that was attached to what would later be identified as a broken paintbrush from Patsy's art supplies. It had been fashioned into a crude garrote. John ripped off the duct tape and tried to undo the restraints holding JonBenet's wrists together. As Fleet raced up the stairs yelling for someone to call an ambulance, John carried the body of his daughter up the stairs. And let's just say goodbye to any evidence remaining intact from here on out. He placed her body on the floor of the hallway just outside the living room. 
For whatever reason, just a few minutes later at an estimated 1.10 p.m., Detective Arndt picks up and moves the body once again. She placed JonBenet at the foot of the Christmas tree, so we're inside the living room at this point. Patsy was apparently half carried over to the body, allegedly physically supported by her friends because she was so stunned, and then she threw herself onto JonBenet's body. John knelt beside her, apparently mumbling, my little angel, over and over again. I think it's pretty obvious that, like I said, we are kissing crucial evidence goodbye with every passing minute after Jean Benet's body was found because of how rampant the crime scene contamination was. Let me count the ways in just the first five or so minutes after her body was found that this happened. John flings the blanket off of Jean Benet. Contamination. He rips the duct tape off of her mouth. Goodbye, crucial fingerprints. He carries her body up the stairs and lays her on the ground. Oh, hello, carpet contamination, entire body contamination, the destruction of the crime scene as a whole where her body was found. Yeah, you're all contaminated now. Aren't a, an actual police officer then fucking picks up and moves the body again, which just absolutely sends me because that goes against police protocol 101. And then, of course, Patsy, in all her pageant queen dramatics, throws herself on top of the body of her daughter, effectively ruining any evidence that might have survived cross-contamination. I think there are few cases in this world that have such a blatant crime scene evidence destruction, at least as much as this one. The blundering of the Boulder PD is something we'll delve into further next week, but holy God, it's almost painful walking through these moments and literally watching crucial evidence become contaminated before our very eyes and understanding. After moving the body for a second time, Art calls for backup, relaying over the radio that they have a code black, that there's been a murder. By 1.30 p.m., BPD officers, paramedics, and the crime scene technicians have returned to the scene. FBI agent Ron Walker is also in this swarm of people arriving on the scene. As two officers search through the basement, once again, just to see if anyone's hiding down there, Officer Bill Palmer overhears John on the telephone at 1.40 p.m. He's absolutely stunned to hear John making arrangements with the family's pilot. Only this time, he's trying to reroute their flight from Charlevoix as planned and wants to head to Atlanta instead either that afternoon or that night. One might say that now is the time to grow a brain, John, because what the fuck are you doing trying to leave town after your daughter's dead body is found in your basement under the guise of a kidnapping? Palmer explains to John that, uh, sir, you actually cannot leave town because this is now a full-blown murder investigation. Still unnerved by all of this, though, Palmer reports what he overheard to Sergeant Larry Mason, as well as Detective Arndt. Sergeant Mason pulls John aside to really drive it home that he and the family literally cannot leave town. According to James Kohler in Foreign Faction, John actually argued back, saying that he had an important meeting that he couldn't miss in Atlanta. Which, again, what? The family was set to fly out to Michigan for the remainder of the holidays that day, and then they would be flying to Florida to attend a Disney cruise. What is this sudden meeting in Atlanta about? How could you even fathom going to some meeting in Atlanta when your daughter was just found dead by you in your own basement? Why in the world would you ever try to leave? Eventually, though, Sergeant Mason reasons with John, and John agrees that they will stay put in Boulder at least for a few days. It's only now at about 1.45 p.m. that the Boulder PD finally starts securing the entire scene of the Ramsey house. John at this point signs off on paperwork allowing search warrants to be executed. With this, the Ramseys are advised to go elsewhere and the Fernies open their home to them. As they make their way over to their neighbors, John's older children, John Andrew and Melinda, as well as Melinda's fiance, arrive in a taxi. 
They'd managed to get a flight out of Minneapolis after rerouting from their intended destination in Michigan upon hearing the news. John informs them of Jean Benet's death, and they too head over to the Fernie's house, with a police officer following them. By 2.30 p.m., the Ramsey house is an official crime scene in the possession of the Boulder Police Department. Jean Benet's body is laying still underneath the Christmas tree. And by the end of the afternoon, the Ramseys will have hired their first of many lawyers. It's been reported, perhaps anecdotally, that when he first arrived on the scene in bitterly cold morning hours that were so cloaked in darkness, Officer French was said to have remarked that, quote, something's not right. By the end of December 26, 1996, it's not just that something's not right, there is something terribly, terribly wrong surrounding the events of JonBenet Ramsey's murder. It's here I'll leave you for this week's episode about the murder of JonBenet Ramsey. Before we go, though, I'd be remiss if I didn't share with you at least some hashtag questions for you to mull over until next Monday. Number one, who called 911 during the Ramsey's Christmas party? Why? And why did Susan Stein refuse to let the police officer into the house when he arrived? What was the deal with Jean Benet talking about a secret visit from Santa after Christmas? Was this just Patsy putting on an act to extend the holiday excitement for their trip to Charlevoix? Had she recurated Santa Bill to help her with this by asking him to tell Jean Benet he'd see her in Michigan in order to create a little more Christmas magic for their youngest? Was Jean Benet really asleep by the time the Ramseys arrived home on Christmas night? How long did John play with Burke? And what time did he actually bring his son up to bed? Did he even actually do this? What time did John really go to bed? To that extent, what time did Patsy actually go to bed? Why were the kitchen lights in the Ramsey home on at around midnight, as seen by their neighbor Scott Gibbons? Who did Melanie Stanton hear scream at around 2 a.m. on the morning of the 26th? Why didn't Officer French shut down the Ramsey house and treat the entire place like a crime scene from the get-go? When was the Ramsey ransom note written? Christmas Day night, and it was intended to be found on the 26th? Or was it written on the 26th, and the ransom was expected for the 27th? Why was the ransom letter found on the back staircase and not somewhere more prominent? Why did they specify $118,000 in the letter? Why, why, just why and how, why? What is up with the strange movie-esque references made, the weird phrasing and in general, the oddness of the entire ransom letter? Why was there what appeared to be a first draft found in the house? Why write two versions at all? How did the ransom note writer know to put everything they used to write the letter back in its appropriate spot? Investigators have admitted that they believe the ransom note is staged, so that begs the question, who staged it and why? Why didn't Patsy fully hang up on the 911 call? Was she alone when she made the call? If not, who was with her? Whose voices might be in the background picked up on that six seconds before she finally did hang up? Why the hell did they invite their neighbors over in a weird kidnapped daughter Kiki after the alleged kidnappers explicitly said not to tell anyone about what was going on? Was Burke really asleep during all of this? How many times was the basement searched throughout the morning? And again, why did Fleet White investigate it himself? How dark was it in the wine cellar that Fleet didn't notice a body covered by a white blanket when he checked it out? Or maybe a better question, was there even a body in the wine cellar at the time Fleet searched it? Why did the police let the victim advocates wipe down the kitchen? I will never be over this. This is like on par with the Maura Murray sky malt mixed with red wine for me. Through whatever means, John was able to secure the ransom money by around 9 a.m. that morning. However, he or anybody else, they never picked it up. Why? And why, when 10 a.m. came and went, did no one really mention the fact that a ransom call had never been placed? Did the Ramseys know that a call would never come? 
Where exactly did John slip off to between 10.30 a.m. and 12 p.m.? After it seemingly was searched several times throughout the morning, why did John immediately head to the basement for another search with Fleet White after Detective Arndt asked him to around 1 p.m.? I can almost understand a distraught father not wanting to leave the body of his daughter down in the basement and thus, I can almost understand why John carried JonBenet upstairs after discovering her. But why, why didn't Art shut that shit contaminating down as soon as she was brought upstairs? Were the Ramses distraught with grief, which is why they kept touching their daughter, or were they purposely trying to contaminate evidence? Why the legitimate fuck did John think it would ever be okay to try and leave town the same afternoon his daughter's body was found. What was this important meeting John claimed that he had in Atlanta anyway? Was this a lie as it appears to be? And if so, why? How did Jean Bonnet come to be placed in the basement? And why did it take so long for so many people to find her if she really had been in there all along? Which I think brings us to the biggest question of today's segment. Who put JonBenet's body in the basement? Next week, we'll dive deep into what the autopsy revealed, examine an investigation that has dragged on for over 20 years, and of course, we'll consider the various theories about just what did happen to JonBenet. If you like what you're hearing, hang out and stay a while by subscribing on your preferred podcast platform. And please leave a rating and review too if you're really leaning into the dot of it all. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, you can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at Dark as Hell Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at Dark as Hell Pod. Again, that's all one word. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at darkashellpodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in joining the DA Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash darkashellpodcast to see what level might tickle your spooky fancy. This week, I'll be writing up the true crime news of July, which includes me wondering who's going to tell Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell that the world didn't end on the 22nd like they swore up and down it would. I promise you don't want to miss this, so come be a part of Da Spooky Crew. Patreon.com slash Dark as Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you back here next week, ready to get dark as hell all over again. Yeah.